This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. In the great new Netflix series Beef, two people have, well, a lot of beef with each other. It stars Ali Wong and Steven Yun as characters whose worlds collide when they engage in a manic road rage war. The incident has severe consequences for their family, friends, and colleagues. Yet, neither can help trying to one-up the other in a long-running, increasingly mortifying tit-for-tat that reveals past traumas and existential dread. I'm Aisha Harris, and today we're talking about beef on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to improving lives through invention, innovation, and climate action. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is writer Kat Chow. Welcome back, Kat. Hi, thanks for having me on. Also joining us is Tobin Lowe, an editor at This American Life. Welcome back to you too, Tobin. Great to be here. Well, Beef stars Ali Wong as Amy Lau, a well-to-do entrepreneur on the brink of making a life-changing deal. It also stars Stephen Yun as Danny Cho, a struggling contractor with dreams of building his parents a new house. Their initial encounter is a highly intense road rage incident and leads to a battle for revenge and spills over into their personal and professional lives with devastating consequences. The cast includes Joseph Lee as Amy's eternally optimistic husband, George, and Maria Bello as Jordan Forster, a wealthy, very tone-deaf businesswoman interested in working with Amy. There's also young Mazzino as Paul, Danny's slacker younger brother. The series was created by Lee Sung Jin, who previously wrote for another Ali Wong and Steven Yeun project, Tuka and Birdie. Beef is streaming on Netflix now. And just a little warning, we've watched all 10 episodes, so we're going to get into the plot details and spoilers a little bit later in this conversation. So you have been warned. All right, let's go. Kat, let's start with you. Tell us your initial thoughts on Beef. Oh, my gosh. Well, I had no idea what to expect going into this series. I hadn't really read much of it. And I found it so gorgeous and really deeply unsettling. Mm -hmm. And the entire series, I found myself off kilter and off balance where, you know, the whole show hinges on this wild, escalating road rage event where Ali Wong and Steven Yuen are just driving around L.A., really trying to hurt each other. And that type of momentum just carries throughout the series. What are you doing? Stop. Stop, 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 stop. 
I'm really into the idea of rage as something that can drive an entire series and exploring how that looks and exploring both the softer and harder sides of it. So yeah, overall, I'm a I'm a really big fan. Yes, rage is the <laughs> I, I think the central word of the, this entire show, and I've never seen it uh, depicted quite like this. So I, yeah, I completely sure. agree with you. Unsettling is a great description of this show. Mm-hmm. Tobin, how about you? What are your thoughts? Oh, I had a lot of fun watching this show. You know, just like in terms of tone and style, like it's play cousins to me. Feels like it has tones of parasite mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the house, how it's dealing with class, pol- the house, the gorgeous house that Ali Wong lives in, and her gajillionaire benefactor. You know, there's a lot of class politics happening with the rage that people in different places feel at each other about where they are in life and how they're situated. Um, it also reminded me of, I don't know if either of you have seen this film, Catfight. Uh, it's like a oh, Sandra yeah. Owen and yes. Heche film. I totally forgot about that. I watched it because you recommended it to me once. <laughs> it's Tell a me. film that I have hugely loved. And maybe this is just a thing with me. I love pieces of media, especially right now, where people get to act on pure rage, like we're saying. Mm-hmm. Not just anger, but like a real low simmering feeling that you have to often suppress. And I feel like it's a thing we're all walking around with right now. To watch something where people act on that feeling felt really satisfying. I will say, like, as the show goes on, I don't think in any way is it condoning acting on that rage in this way. But it is very satisfying to watch how much you're mad at somebody, you feel rage at them, and you go, like Kat is saying, to the most sort of, like, animalistic ways of acting that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was a lot of fun to watch play out on this show. Yeah, I think your point, Tobin, about how the show doesn't condone it I think is really, really crucial to what makes the show work for me because Mm -hmm. there is this level of catharsis and also mortification as you're watching these two people act like full-grown babies in many ways. Um, The show really unpacks in many ways where that rage is coming from Mm -hmm. and how regardless of where what your class status is, because this is also kind of a tale of class as well, because Amy is well-to-do, but she's someone who was not always rich, and she very much harvests still that sort of chip on her shoulder about not having money when she was younger. And then she also uses that, the fact that she is in a higher class status, against uh, Danny. But he's not that sympathetic either. So right. there's this interesting sort of, <laughs> uh, like, where neither of them is is a character you're necessarily rooting for. Um, and you could argue, you know, how this whole thing starts Is it Amy's fault? Are they both at fault? Is someone worse than the other? And I think the show kind of plays with like who you might be more on the side of at any given moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not so easy as like eat the rich. Like it's not that simple. (laughs) There's something about the power dynamics that I am really drawn to where it can flip at any instant where Danny is posturing for Amy and then suddenly posturing in a different way for his younger brother, Paul, who is such a fascinating character. He has such a sort of tender, older brothery mentality to Paul, but then at the same time, isn't always, you know, perhaps Paul's best support system in the world. Mm. But what I also really loved, the little details like Fumi, for example, Fumi is sort of the family matriarch. She's Amy's mother-in-law, and she's also the widow of this man named Haru Nakai, who 
was a famous Japanese chair designer. And throughout the series, you kind of see these really expensive $100,000 chairs that have Fumi's body imprint. Oh, he fell in love with the interplay between void and substance. So naturally, the curvature of the seat is modeled after the contours of my own backside. (laughs) But the way she was styled was so good. It just, it really seemed to me to really signal like artistic Asian American bougie class. The little Easter eggs that I just got to see, that's what made this show really exciting visually for me. I so agree with what you guys are saying about the interesting way that power is moving and how you are siding with different people at different times. And I think one thing I like walked away from this series thinking about is like the strength of the two central performances from Steven Yoon and from Ali Wong in that if you think about it, these are two like very selfish characters. Like mm-hmm. At the end of the day, they both do things that are very selfish. And you can imagine in somebody else's hands, you might not root for one or the other at any given time if those two performances don't have some core likability and skill to them. And so I think it speaks to like how well they pulled off these roles, that they felt very head-to-head. For and sure. at any time when the perspective shifts and you're sort of following one of them enacting their revenge, you're so on their side. Like, you're kind of rooting for them to pull off their latest hijinks. And so, like, I just so appreciated how balanced they were in these two central performances and how, like, that was very nicely pulled off. Yeah. I really didn't feel as though one actor outshone the other. And I also thought character-wise, these characters were so similar in their, but also had so many differences. But their performances, I think Ali Wong can just bring this really, really tightly wound darkness and her facial mm-hmm. expressions. I mean, honed on stage for sure, but the the way her eyebrows moved to express anger or disbelief, I was really into it. Yeah. And everything they do, the show makes it very clear why they're doing it and Mm -hmm. yes it's rage but it is like that rage is coming from a very specific place and i think that both of the actors here are able to really tap into that there's one really great scene where uh danny has joined his ex-girlfriend's church and he's just kind of overwhelmed and taken over. Like, to me, this is like the Emmy nomination scene that they play, like, in the when when he's nominated. Mm-hmm. Like, he starts crying while they're singing this praise song. I couldn't tell how much of it was real and how much of it was just, like, him maybe putting on a show like yes. how that was so moving like that's the point right yes <laughs> which actually brings me to a point where i think we can now kind of tiptoe more into spoilers and just kind of talk about specific plot things mm-hmm. so if you're listening and you haven't watched it all yet or if you care about spoilers even though there's not so much spoilers as there are just lots of twisty plot points but this is where we are going to talk more in depth about specific details so Now's your moment. Get out. Get out. <laughs> Leave. <laughs> Obviously, a lot happens. Peeing on people's bathrooms. A kidnapping. Accidental kidnapping that turns into an intentional kidnapping. As the things sort of mount up and get to the point of basically no return, how do you think the show really deals with those sort of escalations throughout the rest of the series? 
those escalations were so harrowing to watch. And I think that the way that they built on each one where, you know, at each stage, there's this opportunity for Danny or Amy to just back down, to walk away, to not do all of these things that really just make not only the other person's life hard, but their life hard too. You really see the tension in immediate payoff versus long-term gain long-term gain being peace and not really blowing up your life. And so you can see this from miles away, but still it's somehow so compelling because even though you know how the equation is going to be solved somehow, the like nuts and bolts of the numbers and everything else is still riveting. I think the escalation of how sort of nuts the revenge gets on each other, the thing that saves it from just being like kind of ridiculous and feeling unmoored is that everyone's operating from this place of, I think I'm a maybe not a good person, but a person who's just trying hard to get what I want. Mm-hmm. And so there's these little moments that are baked in where they go to do something, like when he goes to set the car on fire, and then he sees the little girl in the back and has this moment of like, ah, that's not me. Yeah, yeah, Amy's daughter. Like, what am yeah. I doing? What am I doing? Right. And so there's these moments baked in where you can feel themselves pushing and pulling against themselves even in these moments of rage. And so I think that's what makes the escalations make sense is because it's not just like the one-upping. It's the one-upping with a lot of story put in and a lot of their motivation at the core of it. For sure. Yeah, and I also think just... We are in this moment now where, especially during the pandemic, and there's this sense of just like general anger. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that, like, and, and just frustrations <laughs> that I think this show really harnesses in a way, but harnesses it in the form of like all of this Asian American culture and Asian American perspective that we've seen so many examples of white male rage and, and those sort of things. And to see it in this context, I think is really interesting. The show, I think, does a really good job of sort of harnessing many microaggressions in ways that feel integral and not too, like, signposty, like, here it is. But Mm -hmm. just the fact that the Jordan character, for instance, and Jordan is the uh, businesswoman who may get Amy in on a deal that will change Amy's life. And she is the ultimate, you know, white woman who thinks she understands Asian culture more than the Asian people she's around. And it's so threatening. Nobody else in my family understands culture. That's why Forrester's has been stuck in the past. But that's why you're here, to change that. See, I like you. You have this serene Zen Buddhist thing going on. Um, you know, just doing me. There's one line she says where she's like, don't screw this up because you and I both know I can just go to China and copy the stuff you're doing for less. That gave me chills. (laughs) And the way she says it, she just kind of tosses it off in the most like white woman way. You can see in Ali Wong in Amy's face as she's just kind of like taking these minor these shots and just like deflecting them as much as possible. You can tell that she's practiced at this, that she has had to deal with this probably her entire life. And I think that also is like another place of where that rage comes from. And it's really interesting to see that in an Asian American perspective, as opposed to in the ways we are seeing it elsewhere in other TV shows and movies. Um, I found it really fascinating to sort of think about how that shows up. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I was reading that Lee Sung Jin and Steven Yuen were initially talking about having the other driver um, in the white car be a white man. 
And that would have completely changed the dynamics had, you know, Ali Wong not been cast or even an Asian American or an Asian American woman. And I'm so glad because you have all these like little in-jokes where there's this joke that recurs throughout the series about peninsula mentality. And (laughs) I'm not even Korean. And I find that so funny. (laughs) And I really also found, I mean, back to the motivation part of it and also back to what Aisha is saying, the reason why Danny becomes such a rich character is because so much of what he's doing is also for his family Mm. and to have filial duties show up in a way that's not really cheesy or earnest. What I really appreciate is that all of this is just an aside. It's remarkable to the you know degree that we're talking about it now, but when you're watching it, it just registers as completely natural because this is their universe. And so I was really happy to see that. It just felt like, okay, this is what happens when you have an entire team that is probably Asian American or you know of Asian yeah. descent. Can I also shout out on this topic we're talking about of specifically placing the the sort of simmering rage in an Asian American context? I just want to shout out the fact that they're lampooning Korean church, for example, mm-hmm. as a scene. Yeah. <laughs> like, that felt so specific. And I was like, oh, I know this. Yes. And I love that you're going into it. And, like, as Kat mentioned, the sort of, like, not just rich Asians, but, like, sort of bougie art scene Asians, which is, like, an even more specific niche. Yeah. So I just appreciated, like, all these sort of little pockets by putting it in an Asian American context. Like, the specific lampooning was really uh, enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, apparently that praise line from the church and those church scenes is, you know, from a real Korean church. And Stephen Yuen grew up in the Korean church, too. He grew up going, and so did the show creator. So you can really see the ways in which they play with, I don't know, the idea of salvation being a force for good and how that comes Mm -hmm. out aesthetically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm also curious about the final episode and sort of the way the show does take kind of a tonal turn in a way, like around episode seven or eight is when we start getting like a little bit sort of supernaturally, supernaturalistic, Mm -hmm. and they keep showing the shot of the ground and we don't know what it's connected to. And we don't ultimately understand what it's connected to until the final episode. It was a really, really interesting take on the idea of the drug trip, uh, which I think often in movies and TV shows, it's played for a comedic effect in a way that I think is so hackneyed and like really dumb. But like the fact that they are out in the woods and they both are at the point where lots of stuff has gone down (laughs) and they've reached the lowest of the low. And then they ingest these poisonous plants unknowingly and then they have, they start to hallucinate. And I really liked the way this was done because it kind of brings back the themes that are percolating throughout the show, which is that in many ways they are alike, Mm -hmm. even though they come from completely different worlds. Mm -hmm. They both have these histories with their parents that are very fraught and contentious. And the way that the final episode really kind of tangles with how they are like and how they kind of come to an understanding. And it doesn't necessarily make them any more sympathetic or people that we're necessarily rooting for, but it does sort of bring together this idea that there is a shared connection there. I don't know. What did you think of the final episode? It was also just really funny. Mm -hmm. It's the first time we're taken out of a suburban environment and we're in a literal 
desert area. And it's also the first time, I think, where for an extended period of time, you see Danny and Amy together in the same scenes for, you know, just more than some glancing steps. And I I really liked it as an exchange of empathy, where I think you start to really see them thinking about each other as actual humans. Danny says something to the effect of, um, like, I think he farts and his fart echoes in the canyon. (laughs) Hello? Amy hears and is like, oh my God, come on. And uh, Danny says something to the effect of, my brother is dead because of you! And that really kind of brings them together in a way that you root for as a viewer, or at least I did. I wanted to see what was going to happen. I wanted to see if they were going to help each other both get out of this mess. And that to me is where the tension kind of turns to something else where, yeah, you've come together, but you still have burned down the entire world around you. So how are you going to fix it? I mean, I'll say I also appreciated that they went for a very, like, operatic ending as opposed to something that might have, like, turned the car around at the last minute. You could totally Mm -hmm. see a version where they reach some kind of resolution and it's not a more muted version of the ending. But I like that they drove that car quite literally off the cliff. (laughs) I, as a rule, don't love magical realism or mystical (laughs) elements in storytelling. I think sometimes... Just as a personal taste thing, I think it can be more interesting to stick with the world you've built and not sort of open up this other door that I'm not saying in this case, but sometimes it can feel like cheating. Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily mind it in this show. And again, it feels like as they're upping the ante each episode, it kind of felt like a natural progression. And I guess in this case, I should say I'm not necessarily talking about the last episode exclusively. There's sort of like magical realism, mythical elements that get introduced in the last three episodes or so. Right. But again, personal taste, I don't love mystical things. It might just be me, you guys. Yeah. Before we go, I'm curious as to whether or not you have any favorite scenes or favorite characters, because there are a lot of characters in this show, and I think that there are a lot of um, really great moments that I loved. And I'm curious if you had anything that like really stuck out to you. I was such a fan of Fumi. I know I mentioned her before, but <laughs> just from, you know, her eyeshadow color to her her mannerisms to the way she seems like the doting mother, but then really deep down, she's like, Georgia's talentless. You're really going to have to be the one who sparkles, Amy. Um, I found her performance to be really good. And I also thought the actor who played George was very well cast for that role too, as sort of the very handsome, doting father who tries really hard to make his blobs, but maybe just isn't isn't hitting it. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved both those characters, too, because I think especially with George, he starts off as kind of like the guy you want to roll your eyes at all the time. He's mm-hmm. He doesn't really seem to be listening to Amy when she tries to voice her frustrations. And he's just like, woo woo. Yeah, I yeah, let's do these breaths. Yeah, these kind of platitudes that are very empty and not helpful. But then as the show goes along, we really get a sense that there is more to him than just that and that he can feel upset. He can feel anger um, in a way that, you know, at the end I was like, oh man, I feel really bad for George, even though he's a little aloof and he's a, you know, aloof rich guy. (laughs) I feel like one of the things that's fun about the side characters is that I do think the show is making some kind of point that everyone has a suppressed rage. Mm -hmm. And we're only Mm -hmm. seeing the two main characters play it out in this certain way. 
And for everyone else, it comes out in these sort of like sideways kinds of ways, or like you see the effects of suppressing it. So for George, I just kind of enjoyed the take on like this sort of over-therapied zen, like I'm not even going to acknowledge that I might have feelings. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to push it down. And seeing that as a foil to what uh, Ali Wong is going through. It just really got to me, you know? So then I started driving, and then there was this guy. Before you spiral, I'm going to have to stop right there. Take a deep breath. You know, maybe we should start doing the gratitude journals again. I just, I enjoyed that dynamic quite a bit um, and thought it was fun. And maybe saw a little bit of myself in George, and now I have to go to therapy about that. So... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting to me how this show really so much of these questions about things that are suppressed is like also feeling fulfilled and whether or not fulfillment mm-hmm. is actually something mm. obtainable. Yes. And that's what everyone here, regardless of where their place in, in life is, they are searching for meaning and for fulfillment and they don't have it. And that's I think that's the scariest part. Like it's it's the bleakest part of this, which is that like yes. no matter no matter where they are, they're unhappy and trying to suppress that. Like Amy has a really great line where she's like, it is selfish for broken people to spread their brokenness. She's saying that in the context of like, I'm not allowed to really say what I feel like even her in therapy. She's saying sort of all the quote unquote right things, but her therapist can kind of see right through it. And I think it's really interesting to think about just how unfulfilled everyone is and and whether or not like, is that something we can all have? Yeah. It doesn't look like it. (laughs) And then once you get this benchmark, what happens? And there's this phrase that they say a bit throughout the show, which is everything fades. And Aisha, I really like how you said that that perhaps was like the scariest thing of all. If I think about shots from this show that will stick with me. It's the close-up on Ali Wong's face as she's talking to the therapist about sort of her own trauma and her marriage and things she's lost. There's a lot happening. And I I just really respected how much it took to pull that off as an actress. Um, That's really one that's going to stick with me, I think. Yeah. Put them both in so many things. I, I want to see yeah. these two act alongside. Like, I also love them in Tuca and Birdie. I thought they had a great dynamic yeah. on that yes. show. So, like, love yeah. it. Love Speckle. Yes, Speckle. Speckle's so different from Danny. <laughs> very different. Very different. Totally. Well, we want to know what you think about beef. You can find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. And that brings us to the end of our show. Kat Chow, Tobin Lowe, thanks so much for being here and helping me parse through my rage. Thanks for having (laughs) us on. (laughs) Thank you, Aisha. This episode was produced by Candice Lim and edited by Mike Katzif. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy, and Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Aisha Harris, and we'll see you all tomorrow when we'll be talking about the new Netflix special, My Name is Monique. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. 
Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org elections.